0: Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now, let's learn some real history. Absolutely. Welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you here. This is going to be episode number 49. And in this episode, we're going to conclude our letter from Mr. Adams that was brought up on episode number 48. He had a little bit more to say in that letter, actually quite a bit more to say in that letter. And we're going to get back to that, and we're going to listen to Mr. Adams finish off that particular argument that he had going over there about what he thought regarding the various goings-on at the time, specifically between the British government and the American colonies. And again, thank you for bearing with me on the podcast schedule. I was unable to release an episode on Thursday, per usual, so I uh, uploaded a best of. That was uh, episode number 26, The Guns of Boston. Uh, I, I thought that was a particularly good episode. It really did provide some insight into... What was going on in Boston at the time? Some of the the little things that we don't really talk about much when we talk about the history of the founding fathers. The little nuances about people's uh, behavior and their reactions to what was going on there. So I hope you uh, hope you had had a good time in revisiting that particular episode. If you if you did listen to it, but uh, certainly glad we're back into the re- regular long form episodes on schedule. And I'm going to continue to try to adhere to that as best as I possibly can over the next few months as I uh, work through this other project that I got going on. And hopefully after after that project is over with, we'll return back to our regularly scheduled program, so to speak, with a new episode twice a week on Thursdays and Mondays. But uh, for now on this episode, this is going to be John Adams really just finishing off his arguments from the previous episode that we had. And there's some, some good insight from Mr. Adams, his observations of the British government. Uh, he's going to be making some observations here that are very telling about the uh, intentions of the British government. So let's listen to Mr. Adams give us a, uh, a fairly good education into the, uh, the workings of the British government during this period of time. Let's do that right now. Here we go again, back to Mr. Adams. Again, this was a letter written by John Adams from February 10th of 1775, replying back to his friend in London, uh, believed to be Mr. Dilly, and his letter we'd read on the previous episode. But replying back regarding the... Uh, the compliments that Mr. Dilly sent across the, uh, the Atlantic to uh, the folks in Congress here in the colonies about the good work that they were doing trying to resolve this particular issue between the colonies and the British Empire. So let's continue where we left off, and I quote... I have a great curiosity to know how the proceedings of the Congress of Philadelphia are relished in London, at St. James, at St. Stephen's. I think it may be seen from, from them that America is not insensible of her danger, nor inattentive to the means of her safety. I am also very anxious to know what the Friends of Liberty think of the hasty dissolution of Parliament. For my own part... I have ever thought this the most insidious and artful step of the present reign. It seems to betray more contempt of the people, at the same time that it betrays a dread of some remaining sense and integrity among them that anything else which has been done. You will allow, sir... "...that the broil with America is a very great national concern. At a time when America was assembled to concert measures relative to this great concern, a new parliament is called of a sudden, before the people could hear from America, as if the minister disdained or dreaded that the nation should have the opportunity to judge of the state of America and choose or instruct their representatives accordingly." as if the Minister scorned or fear that the people, the electors, should have the opportunity to hear and converse together upon facts before they chose their members, end quote. That's interesting. So, Mr. Adams is commenting on the conduct of the uh, government of Great Britain, and the way that they're conducting themselves in Parliament and in government around this particular issue. That is to say, they're, they're structuring themselves in, in such a way as to really ignore... What it is that the Founding Fathers were trying to convey to the British government, specifically their concerns and their solutions to the various problems that were at hand. And basically, you know, Mr. Adams is saying that they're being ignored, more or less, by the British government, in some part. Not the entire British government, but, you know, the part that is steering the ship. And isn't it the case that tyrants often don't want to hear from the people? I mean, they say they do. I mean, every tyrant that has ever lived has always professed to be of the people. I've mentioned this before, why so many tyrannies around the world always structure themselves around this uh, this concept of, quote, the people, end quote. The People's Republic of China, oh boy. Yeah, when they were when they were murdering and starving and killing you know mil- tens of millions of their own people it was really all about the people after all you know the, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea the dPRK that would be North Korea for uh new folks who might not have been keeping up with the, the hermit kingdom as they call it but in reality you know they always use those terms you know the people uh, because it's really the exact opposite uh, usually tyrants, and tyrannies, the, tyrannies in the aggregate will tell you the exact opposite of what they really are. And it's usually evident in the name. So whatever their name is, whatever they call themselves, it's usually the exact opposite. Politicians are also very prone to doing this very same thing. Keep an eye on that. So, you know, in the colonies in 1775, you have a very well-organized Congress in America. And in my humble opinion, a very artful discourse and a milder to moderate tone of sentiment conveyed to the king. You know, we read that before. We've read that correspondence. So why does the king not want to listen to the Congress in in America? And of course, we know the answer to that. We've talked about it. Because he's a tyrant. And they just want to shut the people up. They don't want to hear from them, especially when they disagree. I mean, if you're if you're if you're praising the tyrant, if you're applauding the tyrant, the tyrant loves you. He loves the people. And then, as soon as the people disagree, off with their heads. That's the hallmark of a tyrant. Uh, you know, the uh, the mark of a, a true leader, a politician, a statesman, whatever you want to call them, is really how they conduct themselves when you disagree with them, when the people disagree with them. How do they conduct themselves? Do they bring down the iron fist, or are they reasonable and moderate in tone and in action? And you can tell pretty doggone quick who's a tyrant and who is not, very quickly. It's an inconvenient thing to acknowledge. I know, I know it's difficult. We don't want to, we don't ever want to admit that someone is a tyrant, because that's that means that, you know, it's a it's a bad thing and something needs to be done about it. And we can't have that now, can we? There's Netflix to watch and all kinds of other things to do. we got to go to Disneyland or something, plan that next vacation. Can't be doing anything about a tyrant. That's just, uh, that's asking too much. But thank goodness the folks of 1775 didn't have Netflix and they didn't have Disney World. This was a blessing in disguise. Because it freed them up to deal with this tin pot dictator over there in Great Britain shaking his little fist at the American colonies. Uh, the American people had the fortitude to stand up and say... Not on my watch. That's exactly what they did. That's what John Adams is talking about here. He's like, you know, even though they're being ignored, even though they're being trampled upon, Mr. Adams is resolute. He is, go- Him and his people in the Congress are going to proceed, and they're going to defend their rights no matter what. I know, they, they know that the king, they know who this king is. They they know. They know that the king wants them to just shut up and comply. Go along with all of the mandates, the object, you know, the dictates from the, the central power and the dictator and the tyrant. Just, just shut up and comply. He knows. They're trying anyway. That's a testament to the Founding Fathers. They knew who this guy was. They knew who this guy was. We've heard Abigail Adams and, her, and, and the women of the Founding you know, refer to him as a Philip of Macedon. We've heard him referred to as a kind of a, an Alexander figure, not a, not, not, you know, a great conqueror of any, of any note, but a dictator. We've heard him referred to as a Caesar, perhaps an Augustus, but a, but a kind of Caesar, a dictator, a tyrant, a wannabe king, despot, etc., And I know some of these characters have been romanced over time, Alexander the Great being one of them, Augustus, you know, these people have been romanced by history in some regard. And some people think these folks are just, uh, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. But like I mentioned before, these tyrants that are purported to be some some good nature, uh, be it Augustus with his uh, Roman golden age, the Pax Romana, or whatever. You know, tyrants, I don't care how good a track record they have with growing an empire. Uh, What I care about is the rights of the people. And that's what the Founding Fathers cared about. King George III, on the other hand, didn't give a crap because he was a tyrant. Let us continue. Quote, the design of the ministry seems to have been likewise to give the friends of liberty the go-by in England as well as in America. Determined to pursue their system, they would not suffer the friends of the Constitution to converse or correspond together before the day of election, lest the constituents should bind the candidates to act an honest part. It is not easy to convey to you, sir, an adequate idea of the state of this province. It is now at last true that we have no government. Legislative, executive, or judicial. The people determined never to submit the act for destroying their charter so dearly purchased, preserved and defended by the toil, treasure, and blood of their ancestors, are everywhere devoting themselves to arms. Our Duke of Alva is shut up with his troops and is forlorn... Mandamus counselors in Boston. What the ministry will do is uncertain. All the British fleet and army cannot change men's opinions. They cannot make one juror serve, nor a representative. An attempt to cram a form of government down the throats of a people to impose a constitution upon the the united and determined people by force is not within the omnipotence of an English parliament End quote. My gosh, you know, Mr. Adams has a way with words. I think that was a fairly artful way to, to articulate the position the American colonies were in. I really do believe that. Quote, they would not suffer the friends of the Constitution to converse or correspond together before the day of election, end quote. So this is an attempt to try to control information. Control information. Control communication. Huh. I I wonder myself, have I seen anything like that myself in my lifetime? Have I seen anybody trying to control communication, like, you know, trying to shut people up, stop people from being able to talk, communicate in the public square? You see anything like that? Have you ever have you ever witnessed anything like that, be it a government or some other particular party interested in government trying to shut people up? Isn't that interesting? You ever wonder why the First Amendment is like a thing? You know, the right of the people to speak, to assemble, to petition the government, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. It's basically, you know, this is the origins of that. In, in, in some respect, I mean, not exactly. I mean, this is kind of a just, just scratching the surface of it, but you get the general concept here. Information, communication, open discourse, all very important. And the exact opposite of that is silencing people and shutting them up. Okay, now what kind of an individual would want to... Shut everybody up! Oh, that's right, tyrant. Remember that next time you see a group of people or an individual person quieted, silenced—you know, for no other reason than voicing a uh, an opinion, you know, contrary to that of the uh, the dictates of the central power. Just uh, FYI on that one. So, Mr. Adams is trying to draw your attention to that here. So, so pay close attention to what he's conveying to you. Again, this is not this is not my message. This is. Mr. Adams. The Friends of Liberty, he says. In this beginning part, he says, quote, the design of the ministry seems to have been likewise to give the Friends of Liberty the go-by, end quote. So to basically just, you know, blow them off, to heck with you, who cares. Don't listen to those guys, those Friends of Liberty over there. And by the way, that's, a, that's an interesting concept. Do you consider yourself to be a friend of liberty? That, that was a title to one of our episodes. It was about Abigail Adams, uh, a friend of liberty is what I called it. And she, she was a friend of liberty, and I believe that she probably would consider herself a friend of liberty. Just like Mr. Adams is articulating here, I certainly consider myself to be a friend of liberty, and always will. And that will generally be the case uh, until the day I die. As we discussed before, it's kind of a Patrick Henry uh, mindset or a New Hampshire mindset, so to speak, you know, the live free or die state. And he talks, he talks about this, uh, this election. Quote: They would not suffer the friends of the Constitution to converse or correspond together before the day of election, lest the constituents should bind the candidates to act an honest part. End quote. So there, there is this concept that the constituents, if they, if they knew really what was going on, if they had an opportunity to hear an open discourse from the American colonies, there would be a move to try to be a little bit more honest in their dealings with the American colonies, perhaps a little bit more moderate per- than the the aggressive, belligerent action that the Parliament and the King of England have taken thus far. You know, it's it's generally a good idea for the constituents to try to bind the candidates to act an honest part. Uh, oftentimes, you know, constituents like to try to bind the candidates to act a corrupt part, and I'm not making that up, in, in many parts of the world. It's really, uh, how, how is it that politicians get selfish and corrupt. It's usually not, it's usually, I mean, it's their fault, but it's also the constituents' fault, because oftentimes constituents vote for it. Uh, usually that's born out of selfishness. Uh, they, they like the promises that are made to them by corrupt politicians. They promise them this, they promise them that, and next thing you know, people are voting for them, hoping they, those promises get fulfilled, and to heck with the, uh, the country, or the empire. You know, the, the long game really doesn't matter. It's the short-term game that people look at. And people playing the short game are usually what ruins countries and destroys empires. Just FYI on that one, in case, uh, in case you haven't learned that lesson from reading a lot of history. Now, this is very good stuff from Mr. Adams. Mr. Adams is trying to remind us. He is trying to remind us about what's important and why it's important to make the right decision instead of the wrong decision. Quote, the people determined never to submit to the act for destroying their charter, so dearly purchased, preserved, and defended by the toil, treasure, and blood of their ancestors, are everywhere devoting themselves to arms. End quote. Good grief. There's that well-regulated militia again, in case you wanted to have yet another example of what the Founding Fathers were talking about. I mean, we've had probably about, I don't know, a couple dozen At least different examples of this pop up. We're not even out of 1775 yet. You know, I I do marvel at that. Excuse me, this isn't exactly the main point of this line, but I just want to take an aside. Uh, Let's do a sidebar. And I want to illustrate what happens when people don't study history. I I refer to it as a a self-imposed stupidity, and it is. And I've also said before that people who don't study history are dangerous people. They're dangerous to everybody around them. They're dangerous to their country. They're dangerous to their neighbors. And they're dangerous to the rest of the world. Why? Because they have the self-imposed stupidity. They walk around blithely ignorant to the consequences of their actions or their decisions, especially those when it comes to government and public policy. And they, frankly speaking, don't care about anything beyond the threshold of their front door. That's dangerous. And imagine, if you will, you know, the, the United States, and for those folks international. Uh, outs- that is to say, outside the United States. Again, from your perspective, we're international here in the United States. I should be I should be uh, careful about my choice of words. This is another one of those moments when you might be surprised as to the, uh, the-, the depth of ignorance that exists in the United States, but I'm going to paint a picture for you here. The United States has struggled for the last, oh, I don't know, 80 years or so, 90 years. To figure out what the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution actually means. Now imagine this. Again, we have run across so many examples of what the Founding Fathers were talking about when they, when they were talking about a well-regulated militia. It almost defies belief. Because again, we haven't even left 1775. And frankly speaking, we haven't even read that many letters. We've read so few at this point, it's almost ridiculous. And I don't cherry pick these things. I cruise through the letters and I look for things of interest to just about anybody who has a passing interest in studying history. But I don't go through the letters searching out very specifically for things regarding the well-regulated militia, the people taking up arms to defend themselves, and so on and so forth. I don't do that. They, they just show up in the letters. And oftentimes they're secondary, the references to the well-regulated militia, they're secondary to the, the main body of the letter, what the letter's actually driving at. So with very little effort, almost no real comprehensive reading of the letters from the founding fathers at all over the last six months, because again, we're just barely scratching the surface. We have explained, defined, and articulated so many times what a well-regulated militia and that Second Amendment was talking about. It's insane. And yet the United States of America has struggled for the last 80 to 90 years with what the Second Amendment actually means. Now, I don't want to say that the, that the United States is stupid, but it's certainly on this particular issue, the United States acts like it's made up of a population of people. And not all, not everybody, of course, because some people get it. I certainly get it, and a great many other people get it too. But there's a whole large sum of people that walk around and act like they're dumber than a brick. Because again, how hard do you have to work to define that amendment and what it really means. I mean, even just just the Federalist Papers, for, for crying out loud. Federalist 29, I believe it was. We're going to eventually get to that. Federalist 29 is one of those Federalist Papers that actually talks about this, if I remember correctly. I don't have it in front of me right now, and frankly speaking, I haven't read it in years. But I think it was Federalist 29. And I think that one was written by Hamilton. Somebody uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Leave a review on the podcast and say, oh, Federalist 29, it was actually written... Okay, yeah, just, just in case I'm wrong about that. I don't think I am. I don't think I am. But with so many examples and so much evidence of what the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution means. How in the world does this country agonize and struggle like a feeble little toddler trying to walk for the first time to figure out what the Second Amendment actually means? It's like, it's like somebody's struggling to figure out how to start a car with the key in their hand and the instructions written on the dashboard. How is that possible? It's either the, the, the people who can't figure it out are, in fact, dumber than a brick, or they're deliberately obtuse that is to say they're deliberately trying not to understand or just lying through their teeth one of the two i just wanted to i just wanted to sidebar that for a moment so that everybody listening to the podcast can understand the frustration that people like me have that is to say people and i know a lot of you folks i'm preaching to the choir here in a lot of cases the the frustration that we have as history enthusiasts people who actually read this stuff the frustration that we have with people who refuse to read this Who operate with a self-imposed stupidity? Because the answer is right here, on the paper, over and over and over and over and over again. Before this podcast is over, we are going to find in the letters from the Founding Fathers references to every single constitutional amendment in the Bill of Rights. All ten of them. And honestly, beyond, there's going to be references to other amendments that came later. Not direct references, but talking about the subject matter and defining what the the meaning of it is and what the right thing to do is and what the wrong thing to do is. It's all in here. It's all in these letters. 100% of it. Not 80%, not 99% of it. 100% of it is right here. And yet this country routinely agonizes and struggles and strains to try to figure out what that constitution means, what the First Amendment actually means, what the Second Amendment actually means, what the Third Amendment actually means. And again, I have to ask, are we stupid? Are we stupid? Because we must be as a people. We must be the dumbest people to ever walk the face of the planet if we can't figure this out because the Founding Fathers left the instructions right here. We're reading them right now on this podcast, and we will continue to do so until the day this podcast ends. And all of the answers are right here. So easy and so simple, a child could find this stuff. A child. Yet we have courts, appeals courts, supreme courts, and we have congresses and presidents who struggle and strain to figure out the answers to these questions, and they battle with one another and fight with one another. And we have adults in this country who can't figure it out. How is this country to survive? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. And that scares the crap out of me. And if it doesn't scare the crap out of you, you're not paying attention. That's a heck of a sidebar. But for for what it's worth, that's my sidebar for the day. I hate to go off on a rant, but that's, that's, um... It's just one of those things that just gnaws at me. As a history enthusiast, it just gnaws at me. The self-imposed stupidity of half a country... Or more. On any given issue. And it ebbs and it flows. I mean, on, you know, one particular day, one half of the country is deliberately stupid on an issue. And the the other, the next day, the other half of the country is deliberately stupid on a different issue. And it's all from the same, for the same reason. They don't read this stuff. Life is so much simpler when you just read this stuff. Especially when you're talking about a country that was built by a group of people who wrote more stuff than probably any other group of people that ever started a country in the history of the world. On episode number one, we talked about John Jay writing a letter to John Adams, our good friend Mr. Adams, talking about how all these papers need to be saved and preserved. Mr. J., Mr. John J., was 100% right. And for this reason, he knew this was going to happen. Somewhere deep down in that man's soul, he knew that one day Americans were going to walk around dumb as a brick. Not everybody. Again, I'm not trying to offend everybody out there. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you that's reality. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. My, my name isn't Daddy Sugarcoat. My middle name is Reality. Not really. But it should be. Just call me Roman Reality. But that guy knew that one day Americans were going to want to know the answer to these questions because they wouldn't because and they, they, he figured they would go to the letters and read them. Huh. He would be shocked today, wouldn't he? He would be very shocked. I mean, seriously, when the Supreme Court is getting ready to make a decision on an issue of constitutional importance, do you think they retreat to their law library and start reading these letters trying to find the answer from the founding fathers? Huh. Not a chance. Not a chance. I guarantee you most of them don't. Maybe one of them does. Maybe two at most. But the rest of them? huh? uh Why? I don't know. They should, because who would know better the answer to the question than these people? I mean, they do go to the letters when it suits their interests, like, for example, separation of church and state. That's not in the Constitution. It's in a random letter written by Thomas Jefferson, and it doesn't show up anywhere in the writings from the other founding fathers as best as I can find. And frankly speaking, I've read that letter from Thomas Jefferson, and it doesn't mean what people say it means in my opinion. But we're going to get to that eventually. Believe me, we're going to pull that letter out, and we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it. But if you think if you think, if you think John Adams felt like there should be a separation from, from of church and state, then you haven't read very much John Adams. I have read this man's draft of the Constitution for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And believe me, the, the last thing on this guy's mind was a separation of church and state. Yes, I said it. That was the last thing on his mind. As a matter of fact, this guy seemed to try very hard to intertwine the two. Oh my gosh, Roman, are you trying to tell me that John Adams wanted to marry the church and the state more or less? Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Now, he didn't want the state to establish a religion, which is what the First Amendment says, Constitution, uh, the Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but you get the idea. That's what the First Amendment says. It doesn't say separation of church and state. And you would know that if you read the Constitution, and if you actually read the letters from our founding fathers. What's the last thing on their mind? Separation of church and state. Anyway, so they read the letters. People read these letters when when they cherry-pick, and they want to try to find an example that suits their particular political interests, right? But what they don't want to do is read any of the letters that that speak to the opposite of what they believe, which tells you everything about their intentions. They know the letters exist. They know the instructions are there, but they cherry-pick, and they, they read what they want to read. They see what they want to see, and that betrays their intentions. And that's the dark secret that people don't want to talk about. They know the letters are there. They know the instructions are there, but they do not want to read them. If you ever wanted to know what their intentions were... There you go. They're nefarious. That was my sidebar. But again, just this one line just sends me off the edge when it comes to this this issue, because people don't read this stuff, and it's just so doggone aggravating. Quote, I'll read it again. Quote, "...the people determined never to submit to the act for destroying their charters, so dearly purchased, preserved, and defended by the toil, treasure, and blood of their ancestors are everywhere devoting themselves to arms." End quote. "...devoting themselves to arms. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Why? This is why!" It's not for hunting. It's not for target shooting. It's not for fun on a Friday night. It's not for boredom. It's for this. Ta-da! But this is the letter that nobody wants to read, along with the resolutions from Fairfax County and the dozen other letters that we've read that talk about this very issue. And we're not even done yet with this issue. I've got a stack of letters that I have come across that talk about a well-regulated militia. And I'm not kidding. A stack of letters. And I didn't even go looking for them. I just stumble across this stuff. And all of it agrees. It's all in agreement, 100% with what that means. And why am I railing on this so much? Well, gee, I don't know. Let me think about that for a second. Because there's something going on in the world today. People are getting killed right now, this very second, as I record this podcast. They are dying in the streets because some foreign country decided to attack them. And when that happens, the well-regulated militia, their job is to stand up and go to war. But that's kind of hard to do if there is no well-regulated militia, isn't it? Because people are so stupid... They don't know how to, they don't know how to preserve the well regulated militia. They don't understand it. So they try to destroy it. They try to tear it down. They try to malign it. They try to subvert it. And what's the, what's the, what's the consequence of that particular action? People die in droves by the thousands over and over and over again. What do you think would have happened to the Founding Fathers if they didn't have a well-regulated militia? You think Samuel Adams would have survived April 19th of 1775? Probably not. He'd probably be dead. Why, Roman, whatever happened on April 19th of 1775? I don't understand. Well, keep listening to the podcast. You're going to find out. Some of you folks know what that date means. That should be a date that's celebrated in American history, by the way. Or by Americans today. It should be a national holiday. But it's not. Why? I don't know. Frankly speaking, I, I really waffle back and forth whether or not that should be our independence day or july 4th i don't know frankly speaking i celebrate both every april i think about that day and i think about the reason why why samuel adams actually survived he survived because the well regulated militia was called up and chased a british army back to boston shot them up and killed a good number of them and rightfully so their rights were being trampled on so they stood up and they did what they had to do that was the well-regulated militia by the way very inconvenient to talk about most even people who appreciate what the founding fathers did i mean they'll praise the founding fathers oh george washington such a great guy oh benjamin franklin good statesman inventor scientist so on and so forth oh great guy but they'll 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 casually ignore what happened On April 19th of 1775. Because they don't want to talk about it. It's inconvenient. Very controversial. It's more controversial than you'd think. There's a reason why you probably haven't heard of it. I mean, how many folks out there listening to the podcast are hearing this for the first time? What happened? I mean, maybe you remember from way back when. Maybe you don't remember the date. You remember what it is, but you don't remember the date. April 19th of 1775. You should remember the date, but you don't. Why? Because people don't talk about it often enough. It's inconvenient. It doesn't serve the purpose. Don't you see? Because history is inconvenient. It doesn't serve the purpose. It doesn't serve the agenda. So let's just not talk about it. Let's pretend that the, uh, American Revolution was won through magic and fairy dust, and George Washington snapped his fingers and somehow won the war without, uh, anybody picking up a rifle. And then somehow we magically skate from 1776 to 1787 and 1791. That's not how it happened. People had to die. And it's sad that it had to be that way, but that's the way it happened. And how and why? Why was the war won? Why did people dying actually make a difference? Because, quote, the people determined never to submit, end quote, and continuing on, quote, are everywhere devoting themselves to arms, end quote. That's why it's not an accident. And this is a, this is the, the big concept I wanted to talk about here. I'm done with my sidebar now ranting and raving about people's inability to study history. And by the way, that that gives me another opportunity to thank you folks who listen to this podcast, because you're not those people, and you have no idea how grateful I am that you folks actually exist out there in the world, that I am not alone in studying history. You folks remind me of that every single time I upload an episode of this podcast. You folks remind me that I am not alone in studying history, that there are other people that are interested in it, that there are other intellectuals out there, that there are other thinkers out there. Whatever it is that I provide to you on this podcast, uh, the time that it takes me to research this stuff, the time it takes me to record and edit and upload the podcast, the money that gets spent, I also receive a great gift from doing this podcast. And that is knowledge that there are good people out there who study history. And some of them, Listen to this podcast, and I thank you for that. It's a it's a blessing in my life, and I don't take it for granted. Believe me, I don't. But let's let's dwell one more time on this line for a different reason than what I've discussed thus far. "Quote: The people determined never to submit." to the act for destroying their charters so dearly purchased, preserved, and defended by the toil, treasure, and blood of their ancestors are everywhere devoting themselves to arms, end quote. So these charters that he's talking about, the colony charters, these things didn't come easily. They had to be fought for. Keep in mind the first people who came to the Americas say what you want to say about them, and people say various things about them. They were colonists, colonialism, imperialism, blah 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 blah, they attacked the American Indians, uh, so on and so forth, and yes, certainly that was true in some cases, but it's also true that in some cases the American Indians, without provocation, attacked English settlers too. Yes, I said it. And to say nothing of the fact that, you know, the Indians were attacking, the American Indians, that is, were attacking and killing each other long before the Europeans ever showed up. And some, for some reason it's okay for the American Indians to kill each other and go to war with each other, but it's not okay for the European settlers to go to war with the American Indians. That's very strange. I've never, I've never seen that before spoken of in human history. Where it's okay for two group for, for uh, groups of people in a specific geographic area to go to war with one another, but some third party shows up and it's not okay for them to go to war with. That, that, that's the most bizarre thing I ever heard in my life. And, and yes, we're going to talk about that later on as the podcast rolls on. And I'm not saying that war is okay. I, I hate war, generally speaking. I think it's uh, something that should be avoided at all costs. To the extent reasonable. That is to say, I don't believe in peace at any price. That's that's a bunch of crap. But to the extent you can reasonably avoid war, avoid it. And should the American Indians have been attacked? No. In in a lot of cases, no. In some cases, yes. If they if they attacked English settlers without provocation, sure. Defend yourselves. But to the extent they were peaceable, no. And one of the one of the things I, I, I dislike most about American history is how that whole thing was handled. I, I do not appreciate at all how that relationship with the American Indians was handled. It was so badly handled in so many different kinds of ways, it almost defies belief. But anyway, we're not not going to—I don't want to get too far off on a sidebar about that. But but I'm just trying to say, you know, these colonies, it took a lot of work to set them up. People showed up, and whole colonies were wiped out. Remember Roanoke, the colony that disappeared? A whole colony disappeared. Everybody presumably died. Some people think they, they moved on and, and lived with uh, an Indian uh, population for a, for the rest of their lives, and they, they lived at peace and so on and so forth. That's possible, and I like to think that that was true. For any number of reasons, I like to think that the uh, American Indians and the Europeans could kind of get together when uh, hard times come and support and help each other. It's possible they all just got—they all got killed and murdered. That's possible, too, and— you know the uh, the pilgrims, when they, they as they're called, that when they came over on the Mayflower, they had a pretty hard time of it too, and a great many of them died. Very in in the first year, great many of them died, and this kept happening over and over and over again. So w- when John Adams is saying that you know the colonies were purchased at a very high price, he's not joking around here. Uh, this was not easy, and I don't even know how many thousands and thousands of people had to die, but it was a lot. I don't know if there's any true accounting of it, maybe there is somewhere. To say nothing of the fact that the wars that were fought like between the British Empire and the French, the French and Indian War and so on and so forth. Very deceptive name by the way, French and Indian War. It doesn't really paint a picture of what that war was really all about, but there you go. It's like the war of 1812 that way. Well, it's a war that just happened in 1812. Nope, no it wasn't. They really got to name these wars a lot better. I mean I don't know how I don't know how these wars get the names that they do, but that's there you go. I think the French and Indian War was also loosely referred to as the Seven Years War. I can't I can't remember. And I think it was referred to as the Seven Years' War in a broader context because it, it went beyond the borders of North America, basically. Anyway, that's a, that's a longer story. Boy, this this podcast episode is just all over the place. I'm just in one of those moods. I, I don't know why. My, my mind is just bouncing all over the place with this, this history. But these are the things that happen when you start reading these letters. Your, your mind starts dancing all over the place, you know, through uh, American history, British history, and all the rest of it. At least it does with me. I mean, good grief. We're, we're sitting here talking about British Parliament, and then all of a sudden I go on a tear about the Second Amendment, and then we're talking about colony charters, and then the uh, French and Indian War, a.k.a. the Seven Years' War. Okay. We got a lot of history in this episode. Touched on a lot of stuff. I don't know if you folks find that to be a distraction or whether you find it a fascinating discussion i i don't know but you know the throughout the seven years war the the french and indian war you know and so on and so forth it's um a very high price to pay for these for for the colony charters the the the, the towns and the government and everything that they set up it was just so hard to set up people like to pretend like one day there, there were there were no europeans here and then all of a sudden the next day you have these these colonies uh set up by uh great britain boy it didn't happen that that easily it did not happen that easily at all between you know starvation war and just general death i mean it was just a lot of people he does, john adams doesn't want to see this go quietly into the night their freedoms and liberties that they fought and died for you know and he call he he refers to their charters right quote The people determined never to submit to the act for destroying their charter, end quote. And we could think of our charter the same way. We come from the same people, those of us who live here in the United States. We come from these same people. That is to say, if not your ancestry, maybe your family was an immigrant here after this time period, which would probably be the case for most people, I would suspect, or certainly a lot of people. I, frankly speaking, don't know how far my, my family goes in the United States. I do know, to a reasonable, well, to an absolute certainty, my great-grandparents were born here. And I, I, I am fairly certain that my great-great-grandparents were born here as well. Beyond that, it gets a little fuzzy because my family decided not to write any of this stuff down. But we've certainly been here for a very long time. But do we go back to this time period with Mr. Adams? I don't know. Doesn't really matter. For my purposes, doesn't matter. We are all, those of us who are citizens here a product of what these people did in some way, shape, or form, or another. And our Constitution that we live under today was created by these people. And if John Adams felt like freedom and liberty could not be surrendered because of the sacrifices made, then surely today we should feel the same because we have sacrificed even more for freedom and liberty in this country since Mr. Adams. I mean, the suffering, the torture, the war, the brutality has been so much greater since 1787 it's almost unthinkable. It's been millions of people killed in war, in just war. Millions of people killed. Between the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, etc. I mean, the list goes on. So for the same reason, you know, when we say we appreciate the troops and the sacrifice that they have made, it's what John Adams is talking about, too. We cannot submit to the act of destroying our charter, our constitution, our declaration because it was, quote, so dearly purchased, preserved, and defended by the toil, treasure, and blood of their ancestors, end quote. That is to say, our ancestors. So I feel this sentiment for Mr. Adams today. It's not just a feeling that he had in 1775. It spans the ages, because so many more have died, so many more have suffered, so dearly purchased. I I couldn't have said it better myself. Mr. Adams, he he very quite articulated, quite clearly articulated uh, the sentiment that I think a lot of us have. And that that's that's um, very very good um, very good words from Mr. Adams. I really appreciate that you know and it's I mentioned the Korean War a couple of times you know there's reasons for it you know that it's an interesting history. America has demonstrated that it's not only it's not just willing to sacrifice it's what John Adams referred to as quote the toil, treasure, and blood of their ancestors end quote America's not willing to just sacrifice that for our freedom but for other people's freedom as well. And, you know, this this is I'm really tempted to do another sidebar here. I don't know if you folks are going to appreciate this or not, but I'll say it anyway. For as as maligned as some Americans are, you know, some people really do not think highly of the people in the United States, including people in the United States. There's there's folks in the United States who say really terrible things about other people in the United States, especially, you know, a certain type of person like the uh, perhaps the factory worker, the country farmer whatever, what have you, but, you know, these people, the truck driver, you know, these people in droves joined the the army and the marines and went to Korea and fought like heck against, the, against a, a serious endeavor by the North Koreans, the Chinese army, and the Soviet air force to drive them off of that peninsula. And they did it, really, for no particular reason, except they were fighting for freedom generally, freedom and liberty generally, and for people in a different country, in a completely different culture, that they didn't know and probably didn't fully understand. But they just knew the country was telling them, hey, uh, you need to go over here and you need to fight for the freedom of these people. So they went. I don't know what you call that, except the greatest sacrifice a human being can make. Because they did it for people they didn't even really know. And those South Koreans live free today because of it. I marvel at that. And for anybody to say anything bad about Americans in general, or specific kinds of Americans... It's, it's really quite um, unsettling. Let's just put it that way. You know, some, some Americans are branded as being rather intolerant of other cultures and other people, yet we have these large swaths of Americans going over to a place like Korea and trying like heck to make sure that those people are free. Does that make any sense? I mean, if you believe the stories about certain Americans. Does it make any sense that they would volunteer or just... Assuming they were even drafted or conscripted, go over there willingly and fight as hard as they did to keep that peninsula free. Because, I mean, you might say, well, some of them were, some of them didn't really want to go. They just went because they had to. They had to join the military for other reasons, socioeconomic, whatever, what have you. Yeah, but they didn't have to fight as hard as they did once they got over there. And they didn't have to do some of the things that they did, securing civilian populations. Especially when they were evacuating, uh, North Korea around, uh, ri and the Chosin Reservoir when the, uh, Chinese army decided to come across the Yalu River. A lot of a lot of, a lot of stories of sacrifice and bravery in there that don't get talked about anymore. And this is the kind of thing John Adams was talking about, believe it or not, that kind of toil treasure and blood. We should always remember it, and we should never forget. Unfortunately, the Korean War is largely forgotten in this country, along with a number of other wars this country has fought, doing the same kind of thing. Instead, it's the the bad things that get talked about more often than not, not the good things. And and when we do that, when we allow that to happen, when we allow people to just talk about the bad things that happen in this country, and believe me, there are a few, and some of those we're going to talk about on this podcast, you do a disservice to all the people who did the good things. By not talking about them and forgetting about them. So for this is kind of, a again, a, a message to all you folks out there listening to the podcast. Don't let anybody do that in your, in your immediate vicinity. Somebody starts railing on the bad things that this country did. Start bringing up some of the good things. And there's a lot of them. Uh, you're not going to have to reach very deep to find them. But John Adams certainly appreciated sacrifice of people who fought and died for the colonies for the British Empire and for those for the colony charters and the rights and liberties that they had. He appreciated them, just like I appreciate American soldiers who have fought for the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence since 1787 and 1776, for that matter. I appreciate them. And he knew that the, that the, the people in the colonies at the time were never going to submit to the destruction of their charters. That's exactly what he's saying here. He knew that because everybody understood the sacrifice that had been made for it. This is not... Something that you just give up on. You gotta fight for it. And thank goodness they did. Again, these were some brave men in 1775-76. I mean, they were some of the best that this country ever produced. The best. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I like this line, quote, All the British fleet and army cannot change men's opinions. They cannot make a juror serve nor a representative. An attempt to cram a form of government down the throats of a people to impose a constitution upon a united and determined people by force is not within the omnipotence of an English parliament, end quote. Thank you, John Adams, for saying that. And I want you to think about this yourselves. If you were living in 1775, knowing full well what the the might of the British fleet, the British fleet was known around the world, even at this time, as being probably the greatest fleet ever to sail. The power that the British had because of that fleet at the time was unequaled by any empire. The French... Kind of constantly, you know, kind of bounced around a little bit here or there with their fleet. And they had, they definitely had a good fleet for a time. Of course, during Napoleon's time, that fleet really did uh, take a heck of a whacking, (laughs) for lack of a better way of putting it, by the British fleet. But that's because the British fleet was so good. But can you imagine in 1775 saying, you know, looking at that massive British fleet and all those troops and saying, that's not going to deter me. I'm going to stand for freedom and liberty. I am not going to follow the dictates of that tyrant over there in London. I'm not going to do it. That's bravery. That is bravery, knowing full well that that British fleet might come for you and it might sail to the colonies, anchor off the coast and start shelling your city and bombing it into submission. That's bravery. Again, I I say it again. People think they're brave today when they protest in the United States, like when something comes up that they disagree with and they go out and they protest it. People say, oh, that's brave. Oh, that's a brave soul right there going out and protesting. Are you kidding me? You have a couple hundred warships anchored off the coast next to your city, shelling it and bombing it into submission? I don't think so. That's bravery. Uh, The kind of protest you see in the United States today is uh, not even close. That's the difference between the greatest generation, a.k.a. the generation of John Adams, and us today. It's a heck of a difference. And again, keep in mind, John Adams and his people had absolutely no reason to believe they would ever win a war against the British Empire. None. None. They had every reason to believe that the British Army would simply roll up over top of them, burn their houses and their towns to the ground, and kill every one of them. Not the women and the children so much, but everybody who was in the Congress. Thank goodness that didn't happen. Why? Well-regulated militia, that's why. Yes, I said it again. Again, if you ever want to know why, how is it the Founding Fathers actually won that war against Great Britain? I mean, there's a lot of reasons why. They got money from Europe, they got some help from the French Army, but that well-regulated, until the money showed up, And until the French army actually showed up, which took a while, it was the well-regulated militia that was holding the line and trying to beat back the British army and slowing them down and stopping them in some cases. Because the money didn't show up for a while, and certainly that French military did not show up for a while. And the Americans were all alone in it with their well-regulated militia and what little they had. Those were the men of 76. As as I've said it and I'll say it again, the greatest generation. Not to take anything away from the World War II generation. Not taking anything away from them at all. I, gi- I give veterans a lot of credit on this podcast, more so than probably most podcasts do. Well, I, numerous times I've given credit to the, the veterans in Korea who fought there, and some of the there's a lot of overlap there between them and veterans from World War II. Those wars were only a few years apart. I'm not taking anything away from them at all. I praise them over and over, especially the Korean War veterans. Why do I do that? Good gosh, Roman. Why on earth do you spend so much time praising the Korean War veterans on a podcast about the Founding Fathers? Well, I do it in moments where it's applicable. And when I when I see a line written by John Adams talking about the, the toil, the treasure, and the blood that has been spilled for the rights and liberties that the people in the colonies had, it reminds me. And it should remind everybody of the toil, the treasure, and the blood that was sacrificed for our Constitution of the United States, but also for other people's constitutions who deserve to be free, including South Korea. And it was a, it was a combination of the, the great sacrifice and heroism of the, the soldiers of South Korea fighting for their rights and liberties, but also the United States military. And the, the South Korean military is very capable. And they are very courageous, but in, in all honesty, without the United States military, at that particular time, the South Koreans would not have won that war, because there was too much against them, including the Soviet Union. Let's finish off this letter here real quick, and finish our sentiments from Mr. Adams, quote... If they attempt a campaign like that of Kirk, if they send the sword and fire to ravage in this country, they will find in New England a hundred thousand descendants of the Puritans in the Charles and James days who have not yet lost entirely the spirit of Englishmen under the English Commonwealth. Our enemies give out that persons who have distinguished themselves here in opposition to the power of Parliament will be arrested and sent to some country in some county in England. To be tried for treason. If this should be attempted, it will produce resistance and reprisals and a flame through all America, such as the eye hath not seen nor heard, neither hath it entered into the head of the minister or his minions to conceive, end quote. So Mr. Adams is saying if the British want to fight, they're going to get one. The Americans, in this case the colonies, are very willing to try for peace, as we've talked about many, many times before. They do not want this fight. They keep talking about if the if the British start this, if the British bring the fire, if the British start a rupture, as John Adams routinely calls it, with the, with the troops, then they're going to get a fight like that they have never seen before. And bravo, Mr. Adams, for so artfully describing that here. Again, this is a man who is good with words. And I find this, there's a line here I find interesting. This is really going to, rub some people the wrong way, probably not listeners to this podcast, except for the occasional flyby, the flyby listener. We do get some flybys in here. Quote, they will find in New England a hundred thousand descendants of the Puritans in the Charles and James days who have not yet lost entirely the spirit of Englishmen under the English Commonwealth, end quote. Puritans. I'll say it again, in the United States today, and this might surprise some folks, actually it probably won't, this probably won't surprise our folks who are outside the United States, that the term Puritan... Is often used as a pejorative in the United States today, as a slander against people. Like if somebody refers to you as being puritanical, puritan, that's a that's a negative. It's not a positive, right? I I, I very much. Uh, it's sad that that's the case. In my opinion, I know somebody out there's. I I can almost hear. It oh my gosh, Roman, is this it? Roman character actually saying that it's a positive thing to be a puritan? <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm saying. John Adams certainly thinks so. And again, whenever you disagree with John Adams, you probably ought to have a really good reason for doing it. I'm not saying you can't disagree with John Adams. Heck, I disagree with him in some things. I've read a lot of this man's writings, and I disagree with him on certain things. Now, a lot of times what that is, it's 250 years of hindsight that that man didn't have. Or 200 years, roughly. 200 years of hindsight that I have on this guy that he didn't have the benefit of. In other words, I know how things turned out, and he didn't know how things were going to turn out. That's usually where I find myself disagreeing with Mr. Adams. So it's not so much the fault of Mr. Adams, it's... uh it's just that he didn't know. But anyway, you know, he he really speaks in a positive light about these Puritans who are going to stand up and de- defend freedom and liberty. And a lot of people in the United States don't want to admit this today, but it's really because of the Puritans and the, the, these descendants that he's talking about, quote, they will find in New England a hundred thousand descendants of the Puritans, end quote. It's these, it's these men that are going to stand up and defend freedom and liberty and thank God goodness they were there, especially in Massachusetts. You ever wonder why Massachusetts was the center, kind of the the, the, the the spark of the revolution? Why, like Samuel Adams, who was known around the colonies as being a very determined and articulate proponent of freedom and liberty. And it, to this day, he's known as the father of the American Revolution in some circles. Why did that happen in Massachusetts of all places? It's because of these Puritans, that's why. They had a kind of sense of freedom and liberty that other people in the colonies... Shared in some cases, in other cases, not so much. And I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Not all of the Puritans, but they were, it, you really find a kind of abolitionist mindset amongst the Puritans that you don't find everywhere else in the colonies. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Did... did oh my gosh, did Roman just say it? Did Roman just talk about uh, the dreaded concept of... So- yep, that's exactly what I was talking about. And we're going to hear from some Puritans. So, some people who are descended from the Puritans, who might have considered themselves to be Puritans, people close to John Adams, actually. We're going to hear from some of them on that subject. Abolitionists. Abolitionists. Where did they come from? And why did they think that everyone should be free? I'm going to say it again. Why did they think that everyone should be free? And I'm not saying all the Puritans did. I'm just saying you find that spirit amongst these people probably more than you do most other populations. Isn't that interesting? And these are the people that we speak ill of today in the United States. Their name is basically used as a pejorative. The Puritans. Puritan. Oh, man, gosh, you're Puritanical. How dare you? You Puritanical lunatic? Uh-huh. Well, there's a lot of people in the United States today who owe their freedom in some particular regard to a bunch of Puritans from back in the day, a bunch of very religious people who felt like everyone should be free. Everyone should be free. Everyone. Are you getting me? Everyone. Not just some people, and not others, but everyone. Anyway. But yeah, we're going to talk about that later on. As the podcast rolls on, we're going to get into it. So I I believe that America really does, in many ways, owe its freedom and its liberty today to these people that John Adams is talking about. hundred 100,000 descendants of the Puritans. The United States does indeed owe its freedom to those people. Isn't that interesting? And these are the people that we speak ill of today in the United States. Ooh, Puritanical Puritans. Ooh, it's so horrible. Uh-huh. Not according to John Adams. I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm not saying that at all. But I give credit where credit is due. And this last line, very interesting. Talking about if England decides to bring the fire, so to speak. Quote, If this should be attempted, it will produce resistance and reprisals, and a flame through all America, such as eye hath not seen, nor ear heard neither hath it entered into the head of the minister or his minions to conceive, end quote. This man was not making idle threats. This man was telling, broadcasting exactly what's going to happen if the British government decides to overreach and try to smash the rights and liberties of the people. There will be reprisals. This is not a game. People are going to die. This is not a game. You know, I, I said it before and I'll say it again. People oftentimes like to talk about the Founding Fathers like they're mythology. Like they, like they were, it's like this kind of group of myth, mythological figures who lived in a faraway land that happened so so long ago, it might as well have never happened in the first place. Because it was just so long ago. I listen to people talk about the Founding Fathers, and it's very interesting. Even people who really do like the Founding Fathers and appreciate what they did, a lot of them talk about them like their mythology. And I think it comes from having not read these letters. I, I, I don't think the American people would have the stomach for this kind of thing today, for the most part. Some would but a great many just simply would not. They don't have the fortitude for it. I could be wrong. You know, tyranny is is a hard thing to stand up against. It really is. There are people around the world figuring this out. You know, in Eastern Europe right now, they're figuring out that it's very hard to stand up to this kind of thing, but they're doing it, and and that's a a positive thing. And when tyranny invades your country, and the United States has been threatened with this in times past, and the United States has in the past has done very well with this kind of thing. In World War II, the United States was threatened by tyranny from abroad. And it responded exactly like what John Adams is articulating here. And you know, we brought the fire. Well, the enemy brought the fire, and you know, we brought a, we brought a hurricane of fire. Whether it was Japan in World War II or Germany or whoever. And like I said, in some cases, it's other countries that are that are benefiting from America's willingness to go over and defend them. Whether it be in Korea, and again, all this talk about how the United States is imperialist and all the rest of it, then why the heck do we go to places like South Korea, defend their freedom and their liberty, and then just kind of leave? I mean, we still have, what, 25,000 troops over there right now, but what do they do? They're just kind of there to make sure that uh, North Korea doesn't do anything stupid. And what was that thing in 1990 and 91? What was that in the Middle East? How we just kind of went over there and kicked the tyrant out and then left? And by the way, we were asked to come over there, by the way. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia said to the United States, could you please come over here and help us with this? We didn't force ourselves on anybody. We didn't demand that they do what we wanted. They asked us to come over and help. There's something that never gets talked about anymore. And so we went over there, and we did them a solid, and we kicked the tyrant out, we did the job we were supposed to do, and then we just kind of left. Now... Fast forward 10 years, something else happened, and we're we're not going to get into all that. Different times, different things, you know, some things are done right, and some things are done wrong, and something, anyway, we're going to, I'm not going to talk about all that, I'm just trying to make a point. The United States, historically, doesn't suffer tyrants well. It tends to, it tends to not want to allow tyrants to do what they do, and that's a good thing, and John Adams is talking about that right here, except in this case, it was the, it was the United States being invaded, uh, I guess, as you could say it, by, uh, or the colonies being invaded by a tyrant king. And in 1812, James Madison was faced with the same kind of thing all over again. American rights and liberties being trampled upon by the British crown. And so James Madison went to town. And he decided, no, we're not going to put up with this crap. And we're going to do something about it. And he did. And they did. The United States, that is. But today, does the United States have much of a stomach for this kind of thing? I don't know. I really don't know. I hope so. I hope if uh, a tyrant should ever decide to strike out against the uh, American people, uh, or honestly, our interests, I would certainly hope the American people would have the stomach to do something about it, because that's uh, that's been something of a tradition for the United States for quite some time. But all that said, you know, Mr. Adams had a lot to say in this letter, and I really appreciate his sentiments uh, against this really terrible British government that existed at the time. And I've gone a little bit long in this podcast, I think. I don't know how long this is going to be once I edit it. You know, I can kind of get an idea based on... Uh, the length of things thus far so I'm going to cut out my concluding section and I'm just going to wrap up the podcast in this section without without going into the next section it's just I just want to end with this you know John Adams had this general concept that he was trying to convey in this letter and it's it's a few it's a few different things mainly it's about the conduct of the British parliament and the king and the way that they were really just trying to give the american colonies and the congress in the in the in the colonies the runaround and just ignore them Continue on with his tyrannical oppression of the colonies without giving uh, any kind of a passing thought to whether or not he was doing anything wrong or violating people's rights or anything of the sort. And then there's John Adams basically saying, you know, if, if the British Empire continues to persist on this and if they take it to the next level, America is going to respond. We are going to stand up and we are going to defend our rights and our liberties. We will not take this anymore. Don't take this to the next level, Great Britain. It's not going to end well. Because we will not knuckle under, we will not give up, we will not submit, we will not surrender, we will not raise the white flag over the colonies in America. The people of 1775 were not white flag Americans. They were not. Certainly not most of them. Some of them were but not most of them, just like today. You know, I really do believe that most Americans are not white flag Americans today. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But in 1775, there was a lot of really good people who knew that they had to stand up against this god-awful British tyranny. And thank goodness, I'm glad for that. Because we wouldn't have a Declaration of Independence. I mean, that great document. Isn't that document wonderful? Have you read that recently, by the way? Again, I have a copy of it that hangs on my wall and I walk past it and periodically I stop and I look at it and I'll read a section or two from it. And especially the conclusion of the the Declaration of Independence. There's that one line that I really like, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it says something to the effect of, These united colonies are, and of a right ought to be, free and independent states. That's one of the greatest lines ever written in American history. And we wouldn't have that today if it wasn't for Mr. Adams and his people. I don't take it for granted. And I know how it was obtained. I know how that document was defended and fought for. And I know why we still have it today. It's not a mystery to me. It's a mystery to some people, the people who don't study history. But it's not a mystery to me. It's a combination of a lot of things. It's a combination of some very, very educated men. Mr. Adams was a very well-educated man. He understood history, just like Abigail Adams. Those two together were like a powerhouse of intellectual power. I mean, they they really were. Uh, They were both good students of history. And so were so many others of the Founding Fathers and, and the women around them, students of history. And then there was the people who were brave enough to stand up to the British military, the well-regulated militia, and the ability that people had to go, to, like in the guns of Boston, to go down to the local gun store in Boston and buy their arms that they eventually used to put the British military under siege in Boston and drive them out. That's how they did that, in part. But always remember how, they, how we got here, and how it was that the Revolution was won. It was this spirit and it's it's in this letter you can hear it in in John Adams words you can feel it this man was not going to give up no matter what come what may whatever the british empire decides to deliver they're going to meet the challenge and they are going to succeed in defending their liberty and their freedom or they're going to die trying this country was not handed to them on a silver platter it was not a gift it was not an inheritance like it was like it is for us it was fought for Desperately at times, against all odds and a great many pe- great many, many thousands had to die and so many more suffered the loss of almost everything that they had. So say what you want about the founding fathers, but these were not men to be trifled with and these were not men who gave up easily and these were men who, who were willing to walk the walk and talk the talk and sacrifice for what they what they intended to get out of this, which was their freedom and their liberty. And so I you know I really I really wish I really wish these guys could have lived for a few hundred years so that I could thank them in person for what they did. But unfortunately, all we can do is appreciate what they did by studying what they did and listening to what they had to say through their writings. And thank goodness, there's a lot of that. And we get to do that on this podcast. Isn't that wonderful? This is a this is a great thing that we get to do here. It's just absolutely fantastic. And with that said, I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of the podcast. Very long-winded on this episode. Maybe it was because I was saving it up because I, I didn't put out an episode on Thursday, per usual. But, um... I hope you followed along with me, and I hope it wasn't too distracting my various sidebars that I had on this episode. But sometimes, you know, the frustration gets the better of me, and sometimes, you know, I, I get a little bit um, taken, taken away with myself and talking about some of these uh, related issues that I get reminded of by Mr. Adams whenever he talks about certain things. And uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you enjoy the next one as well, and I hope you'll join me there. And again, we may have another best of episode uh, for this Thursday. Probably will, because again, my project uh, precludes me from being able to really, you know, deep dive into the the research and everything like I like I need to to be able to crank out two episodes a week. Um, and not to, not to mention just the the recording and the editing and everything. But um, I will be, I will uh, endeavor to put out another long form episode in a week so that at the very very least we'll have that. So uh, I hope you enjoy the best of episodes that I that I crank out and just kind of repost as uh, something to listen to while we're in between episodes. And with all that said, I will look forward to seeing you here next time. Until then, this is Roman signing out. Thank you.